Okay, so uh, here we are again, <laughs> uh, trying to uh, trying to select uh, just a few moments in the life of the church that are significant turning points. Um, and so far, uh, we've we looked at the very early church, uh, how it started uh, from uh, Jesus and Paul. Um, last week, we looked at the fact that Christianity grows quite slowly. I mean, you get this idea after Pentecost, uh, so many people were saved, but in fact it goes slowly. Uh, one of the things to point out as well from last week is uh, that uh, there were more heretics in the early church than what we would consider Orthodox Christians. Uh, uh, and then finally, by about 325, when the Nicene Creed comes along, uh, there is uh, a well-established uh, sense of what orthodoxy is, but still the fight goes on. Um, 312, if you remember last week, uh, Constantine, uh, one of the Roman emperors, becomes uh, a Christian. Uh, in his conversion, um, he organizes and allows the church to then grow. He moved the capital from Rome to... Byzantium, which he renames the polis or city-state of Constantine, uh, known as Constantinople, and so uh, the church goes on. So uh, this week, uh, before we really have to, in the few uh, times, few Sundays I have to move on, thinking through all the way to the modern world, <laughs> I was hard pressed to say I've got to do one more on the early church, because if we don't talk about Augustine, um, all is lost. Uh, we can't talk about Calvin. We can't talk about other things. I would say uh, that if you looked at, uh, especially for uh, Presbyterian Reformed, um, if one were to say how important Paul was to the early church, after Jesus, no doubt, in all his letters, um, Augustine is really the next one which has an incredible formative moment in the life of the church. And indeed, even John Calvin, if not Luther and others, really look back to uh, what Augustine did. If Paul uh, set up his letters to the church for Christian doctrine, uh, Augustine is very important in terms of looking at history, uh, redemptive history, as the German uh, theologians say, Heilsgeschichte, um, and it's very, very important. So without further ado, we got to start with Augustine. Um, the good news was, of course, that Constantine uh, in 312 decides to convert to Christianity. Um, Moving the capital, however, from Rome to Constantinople weakened the Western Latin-speaking side of the Roman Empire. Repeated attacks from now new barbarian tribes, right? They sort of arise all the time, uh, just like Babylon was overrun with Persia, and, and it, you know, on and on it goes. Well, there was a whole series of Goths from... Uh, Eastern Europe, Asia, who are coming over. After that, it's the Huns. Uh, after that, it's all the Germanic tribes uh, moving. 
and eventually the Vikings, as you might know. So Europe is a battleground for a thousand years, uh, much like the Middle East is now uh, experiencing. And so in 410, after repeated attempts by those left in Rome to pay ransom, to do whatever they could to hold off the Goths, uh, they finally uh, sack Rome, long before American football uses that term. Uh, the term sack, of course, is even better because normally in ancient armies, you didn't pay them uh, to become part of an army. Uh, if you were alive at the end and you weren't made slaves, meaning you lost or you got killed, uh, generals would often allow the troops in payment to go into a conquered area and take as many people for slaves or concubines or literally put in a sack all the things that were the wealthiest that they could put on their back and carry home as tribute for having contributed to the war. So Rome is sacked in 410. Uh, this is going to be a problem, however, because uh, just when Rome was becoming so Christianized, uh, Rome falls, and the large question is, what are the purposes of God in history? Um, first of all, we'll look at uh, the main text. I, I, I can't do too many uh, different Augustine texts, but the main text we're going to use that's very important for history, of course, is his well-known book, The City of God. Uh, his confessions are very important. There's many other sources they have, but we're going to stick with uh, The City of God. Uh, the full title um, is The City of God Against the Pagans. Remember last time I made the distinction in the early church, uh, Pagani meant those who were ignorant. Uh, heretics were those who uh, had uh, understood the truth but had rejected it. So the idea is if you tell a pagan uh, about the gospel and about God's world and so forth, um, they should be on the road to beginning to believe you, and at a certain point they're either a believer or they're a heretic, so against pagans. Um, the primary goal of the city of God, even though very often it's seen uh, as, as an excuse for or an apology, remember uh, Plato's apology, an apology isn't just saying you're sorry, it's defending one's ideas and actions. So you could you could either defend your positive actions or your negative actions, right? In terms of Plato's apology, he was defending what he thought were the positive actions of Socrates, right? So when we give an apology to someone, it's not just saying you're sorry. So in this case, uh, this apology uh, was not really for why Rome fell, but uh, I will say it's more of a consolation about uh, as we've heard in many of our sermons in the last couple months, uh, the silence of God, perhaps, in history when things happen uh, to good people uh, and they're bad things, right? So uh, we're going to look at the uh, idea of the consolation. Secondary goal, you might say, though, is to refute some pagan arguments about uh, the place of the church in society. A uh, little bit of a map I like to get there. Um, you can see that there's many areas here. Um, the darkest orange uh, are predominantly uh, Christianized areas of the once great Roman Empire. 
uh, going all the way up and over. Um, the lighter areas, of course, is where great Christian influence is, uh, but not quite as concentrated, you might say, as the orange. Um, some of the uh, different uh, crosses that you might see there uh, were important places all the way up in Ireland. Armagh uh, uh, remains a very uh, one of the holiest places in Ireland. Uh, in, uh, in France, it's Tours. Um, in uh, Spain, it's Toledo. Uh, so there's different areas here. We don't want to get into all of this, but the context, however, uh, of this is to say uh, Augustine uh, eventually becomes Bishop of Hippo. Hippo is right here uh, in North Africa. And as you know, a hippodrome, uh, when the Greeks uh, first went to Africa, uh, they had a word for horse, hippo. Uh, but in fact, uh, when they saw these really big, fat, huge horses there, they didn't know what they were. And of course, we have the hippopotamus, right? <laughs> it's a big, fat horse. Uh, but hippodromes, a drome uh, was a place of racing, right? Like a velodrome, we said last time for uh, cycles. Uh, Madison Square Garden started as a velodrome, right? Not all the other venues it has now. Um, and so Hippo, though, is a very important place. It was Carthage next to it. Uh, long before the Roman Empire, the Phoenicians had settled all the south here. And, uh, in fact, Rome became strong by feet, defeating mostly uh, the Phoenicians. So moving on. Um, so there's a couple big questions that Augustine is uh, dealing with in his writings, uh, especially in the city of God. Uh, first of all, the place of Christianity in society. Uh, the understanding is what does it mean, right, when God says, okay, Christians, uh, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Last week we talked about uh, the struggle that the early church had saying, who are we? We're no longer the Jews. Uh, we are the ecclesia. Uh, we shouldn't necessarily translate that too quickly as church, although you can say ecclesiastical history. But remember, the strength behind that word ecclesia, uh, which in Latin uses two C's instead of two K's like in, in Greek, is the fact that there was only one place where democracy had survived, and that was Athens uh, for about 100 years. And the ecclesia were all males who had the right to vote uh, in that one experiment. Uh, and that was a unique word to the ancient world, the ecclesia, right? And so the early church answers that we are no longer Jews. We are the ecclesia. In fact, even Jesus uses the word ecclesia. And so it really meant, uh, like in Romans, you know, there's no slaver or free. There's no male or female. We're all equal in God's sight. So a powerful uh, movement. So what is the place of Christianity or the Ecclesia in society is going to be a big question. Uh, secondly, what is God's purpose in history, right? I mean, can you can imagine uh, after 300 years of persecution uh, that finally God's purpose of allowing Constantine to become a Christian, right? Uh, and then, of course, Rome is sacked. Um, what in the world is going on, right? America's sort of faced that and beginning to deal with it, the Christian church about America being a Christian nation, right, and so forth. Uh, so we'll move on. 
the essence of his worldview, we've used that word a lot here, it's an overall picture, um, is, are really two things. One, that there is this redemptive history. History is creation, fall, redemption, uh, which has become a, a very distinctive thing within Reformed uh, worldviews. Uh, ordained by God. History has meaning and purpose. Uh, that's a very important thing. Uh, based on the fact that the ancient world thought of history in a cyclical pattern, right, that things just came around and came around. It wasn't going anywhere, right? The, there wasn't great purpose in history. Uh, purpose of humanity was to consult the oracle, to understand the cycle of life and death. Uh, Zoroastrianism was strong, light and darkness, all those sorts of things. So it's really Augustine uh, who gives us this idea of linear history, that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it has meaning. It's not meaningless. So that's going to be huge uh, for him. Uh, secondly, this whole idea of the state uh, and the church, right? This is a new concept. Uh, and so the, the state becomes divinely ordained punishment for fallen man. It has its armies, power, uh, coercion, punishment uh, as well. But in fact, uh, Christians uh, from many passages uh, in Peter and Romans, as we know, uh, obedience to God-ordained uh, states, uh, but the church has a role. Um, I'm going to go through a couple slides quickly. What I've been trying to do, just to let you know, too, is that uh, I do send the PowerPoint of each week to Annie, who puts it up there, right? So last week, for example, uh, after the discussion, I added a couple more slides on what the different, uh, what the key heresies were in the early church. I hadn't gotten to that last week, right? So as you look at it, you're going, oh, there's a lot of heresies. What are, are, what are they doing? I mean, just in, in brief, most of the early heresies were either denying Christ's divinity fully or Christ's humanity fully. And so it's very often, right, like Satan, uh, who has this sort of power, the most beautiful angel, right, is that a lot of the heresies got very close to Christianity. So one could easily be fooled. And then, of course, they pull back from the, the, the truth of the gospel uh, in that way. So, uh, so Edward Gibbon, you, you probably know his name, right? He's the person in the modern world who sort of drags up this whole idea of Christianity and society. Why is Gibbon doing this? Well, of course, you've come through the Enlightenment when, in fact, most uh, state churches from the 16th century are suffering under uh, the Enlightenment where there's no more mystery left, right? And deism, even in America, and God we trust didn't mean they were necessarily Christians, as we'd say, right? Deism was faith in God, uh, that he created the world, but then he sort of left, right? So uh, Edward Gibbon uh, drags this up again about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. These are the great histories uh, of the world are starting to be written in the 18th century uh, and throughout the 19th century, uh, ending with people like Toynbee, these big universal histories. Most history today uh, is very, very local, uh, and uh, few people attempt a world history anymore. But the uh, the, eight, the 19th century especially was the height of these uh, making sense of the entire world, right? In their postmodern world, there's sort of, you know, we can't know and all those sorts of things. Moving on. So Gibbon is this one. It's really Voltaire, however, 
who had, uh, you know, écrasé l'enfant in French, you know, uh, crushed the infamous thing, which was the church and all that went along with it. But he really said the sacred indolence of the monks was devoutly embraced by a servile and effeminate age, right? And so Gibbon is pointing out some things uh, that indeed uh, Augustine was referring to. Um, Probably the most respected scholar of Augustine in the, uh, not simply doctrinal or theological scholar, but historian, philosopher, uh, theologian, is Stephen Brown, uh, respected over time. I have his newer book um, now uh, in 214 Princeton, uh, Through the Eye of a Needle, so he's still going at it, uh, Wealth, the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West. And so uh, if you um, are looking to read something, uh, Peter Brown's Augustine of Hippo biography is a very good one. And this new one, uh, you can borrow my book if you want uh, and see this. Um, The whole idea is that... um, one of the one of the, the pagans would say uh, Christianity uh, helped the fall of Rome uh, come quicker because Christians had otherworldly concerns. They didn't really care about this world. In fact, they you know by by not supporting it when they should have, uh, they made it fall. Uh, and and there's there's a lot of different articles uh, uh, problems that center around that. But in this case, uh, Peter Brown newly studying it once again after many of these ideas, says it was not a militant church aggressively changing Rome for its own purposes. Quote, the decades immediately uh, after Constantine were in fact fraught with heresies, imperial rivalries, and paganism. The cult, uh, the emperor uh, Julian, who for a brief moment reestablished pagan cults, uh, is paradoxically most luminous figure uh, in that gloom. And what's interesting is it says uh, later on at the end of the 4th century, uh, the wealthy joined uh, Christian churches as well. It wasn't just the poor and the downtrodden. Um, And it wasn't necessarily the conversion of Constantine, uh, he says, that, quote, marks the true beginning of the triumphant of Catholicism in the Middle Ages. Um, He finds that there's a radical shift from civic um, munificence to pious donations, Um, and we can't really go into this too much, but uh, it was the pious donations of the wealthy who uh, would have a relationship with a monastery and a church uh, that, in fact, ended up corrupting the church itself, right? So uh, we'll, we'll hold for that. Um, so Brown says, just to uh, summarize that, we'll move on. After the 5th century, uh, the process of transforming the clergy into a sacral class is going to be one of the problems uh, into distinctive dress, grooming, celibacy. Um, Brown calls the othering uh, of the clergy, claims that the impetus uh, came from the ladies' desire. Uh, the imposition of celibacy on the clergy was what could be called consumer-driven. So uh, this is the issue. I mean, I'm saying this because our next uh, Sunday school class, <laughs> the selection I have is actually I'm holding off uh, talking about the Reformation, I'm going to talk about uh, the late Middle Ages when, in fact, we finally get, uh, after about a thousand years, we get a reversal of this sense that clergy are 
way up there and laity are down here and they, they can't really know anything. They're not supposed to be engaged with it. As well, what happens in the Middle Ages is uh, even among the Orthodox Trinitarian Nicene Creed people, uh, while they do not uh, deny Christ's humanity, they start uh, putting Christ uh, only in heaven as the judge, uh, and they deny his humanity, uh, and so there's this big split. And so it's really, in the 14th century, the, the huge reversal of understanding Christ's humanity, understanding the role of the laity, uh, and that really sets up for Luther and Calvin, who are not the first generation, but in fact uh, the third or fourth generation after a lot of work was done in the 14th and 15th century. So just a little advertisement for next week. But this is the problem starting here, right, is that the, uh, the, there's some wealth in the early church and it moves on. Um, the other person who does a really good job at uh, uh, looking at uh, the essence of Augustine from a historical and uh, philosophical, theological viewpoint is James uh, O'Donnell. Um, he's got a new book, uh, new biography in 2006. He says, quote, It was not precisely the sack of Rome in 410 that aroused Augustine to write his City of God, but the lingering contention it provoked among sophisticated citizens, Christian in name, but classical in allegiances. Augustine, more concerned to help Christians uh, really understand the silence of God, apparent inaction, right, of God. Why did you let the Roman Empire fall? Could it not have been a better way for your gospel to go forward? And, of course, Augustine has to answer that. Uh, and the suffering is of Christians. Um, so, really, uh, I think, uh, correctly, I would, I would sort of stand with O'Donnell saying uh, a lot of the purpose is much more of a sensitive pastoral uh, issue. Quote, the plight of religious women uh, who had been raped during the siege itself, uh, how do they come back into the church? And while some committed suicide, others lived in great distress and even endured criticism about their morals. The purpose was entirely pastoral, uh, in many of these things. So we have to look beyond uh, acting like we're defending the church and God in history, right? So Augustine's primary interest is pastoral. All right, so I'm going to take you through a couple things um, uh, uh, in terms of history. Um, one could do a whole uh, talk just about the doctrine uh, and so forth. But uh, what's the role of Christianity in the state? And then secondly, I want to have time to get to uh, God's purpose in history. So two things, right? Now, what's really interesting is that Augustine um, goes right for the juggler. <laughs> uh, there was no one in the Roman Empire who was more respected and quoted. In fact, uh, I'm doing a, a Western Civ II course this semester, and all the way through the 19th century, even Keynes, we're, we're, we're paralleling reading Keynes on the one side for economics and Friedman on the other, but even Keynes is dropping the name Cicero, right? So Cicero and Seneca for the birth of, of the U.S. and all the way through, very, very important. Uh, so we need to know about them if we're going to know about Augustine. Well, 
Um, so one can dialogue with the dead, much like Homer in the Renaissance had, you know, letters to Homer and letter letters to, you know, so forth. So uh, we see that he's dialoguing with Cicero, and he says, okay, so what does make a republic or a commonwealth, which was the uh, the language of republics, right? And that that language disappears until early modern Europe, when in fact that's the new question again among all the states. What is wealth in common, right? So that's Adam Smith's book, even, uh, and many others. So, uh, so he he quotes in the City of God. He says, "Okay, I've done my homework. This is what Cicero would have said: uh, A republic is a people, quote, uh, united by quote a common acknowledgement of law and by a community of interest." And I think Augustine's saying, "Well, that's pretty good, Cicero. I'm I'm glad you at least established that." The question, though, is Cicero, was this enough to keep the republic from becoming the empire? You see, what he's doing is he's saying, if the pagans are, are asking me why the Roman Empire fell, that it was Christian, remember, uh, you didn't even settle the question when Julius Caesar comes along and so forth of how, uh, how the transition, which we all denied, it's the pink elephant for the Romans, right, is it was a republic and it became an empire, right? And so, because Caesar keeps, and others keep having a Senate, and, and they're so proud of, of all their, but it had indeed uh, slipped away. And so he says, Rome fell, right, because of corruption. Leaders were driven by self-love. Even gods did not love them, right? So he gets right at the heart of it uh, in terms of that. So Augustine says, okay, let me give you my answer of what a good republic is. And, of course, this is going to be significant when it comes to Luther and Calvin and many other uh, Christian uh, theologians, philosophers, historians who, in fact, give us uh, modern ideas of the correct role of uh, church and state later on. Augustine says in Book 14, republic is, quote, a people is the association of a multitude of rational beings united by a common agreement uh, on the objects of their love. See, what he's doing is he's saying, let's not just assume that law is there, but in fact, people have to be able to rationally understand the law in order to really support it. Uh, It's not just there. And of course, the real thing is uh, love. Um, Very few states until almost after the 19th century had an, a, a concept of patriotism or love, right? So this is post-French Revolution. We might even get uh, there if we keep going Sunday schools uh, to see why the post-French Revolution is so important, again, um, for uh, the establishment of the church as a turning point. But it's really important that Augustine establishes this. He takes the moment to say there's two cities. Uh, earthly law city Uh, is created by self-love, and that was the problem of the Roman Republic, Uh, and the heavenly city is created by love of God. And so love becomes the center of the action in society in a way not previously done uh, in this case, and he's applying it to not just the Christian church, but in fact the common grace, linking that up. Uh, Augustine is weaving that into the purposes of God, uh, salvation history isn't separate from human history, right? It's all the same thing. Uh, in one, you can see it more clearly. In the other, you can't see it. But Augustine, of course, is helping us see it uh, in that way. So very important uh, role here. 
So you see what he did. He didn't have to, unlike modern politics, uh, demonize the other candidate <laughs> in order to get into office, right? He does a very neat job of accepting everything that possibly was good, but some of the problems, and then, of course, uh, corrects it with uh, some great ideas about love. Uh, it's always the tale of two cities, right? Uh, uh, we can go back to Cain and Abel, uh, uh, the first two sons, uh, and certainly Shakespeare uh, way uh, uh, past that had talked about this. So societies, some people advance uh, because of the common good. Others do badly. Uh, Christians serve a loving God. Human relationships can only flourish uh, if uh, human actions with love for God. Um, boy, I, I, I see all the footnotes when I even lecture. I mean, <laughs> those who do this understand it. Uh, even the word flourish, I should have put in uh, the uh, word that uh, 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 Aristotle wanted there, uh, eudaimonia, right, which oftentimes is happiness. But he said, uh, Aristotle said, uh, the goal of human existence is eudaimonia. You can hear in there the, the, the sense of spirit, which is daemon, right? Eudaimonia is happiness, but it's a, a flourishing happiness, right, that has all the correct things uh, to it. So another thing to say Last week, I introduced you to Stoicism, right? That was the strength of the uh, Roman philosophical thought based on the Greek, and that is to say uh, the, the pagans, I believe in their common grace, were led to be, as much as their polytheistic gods, they had created a hierarchy at least. Zeus is the highest. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. They were bothered, however at the best that they could do with polytheistic gods. And so already starting with the Egyptians, with the word mat, but certainly with the Greeks, they started to conceive of something beyond even the highest gods. And for the, for the, uh, the uh, Greeks, it was the word dike, D-I-K-E, which meant ultimate justice. And it was beyond a person. It was beyond, because the problem with all the polytheistic gods was, uh, the Greeks figured out that they played people, they deceived people almost more, and people served the gods, right? So in this case, uh, they're struggling for something bigger. For the Stoics, then, this idea of logos, which we can translate word, but it should be word in the sense of I give you my word, right? It's will and desire. Uh, logos became something bigger than the gods, uh, it was the eternal fire, they called it, right? And so it, it, it was forever, and of course fire gives heat and light and all those sorts of things. And then little sparks came off the divine uh, logos, and that's what was in humanity, uh, humanity's ability through rational thought to think about logos and so forth. So Christianity uh, used some of that structure. Uh, so the other thing uh, that Aristotle has as really the founder of science, we, we won't say modern science, but science in general, is this idea, he says, to know something truly is to know its telos. In fact, uh, even in Preston's sermon today about knowing the real thing, uh, that, that each child has that, right? So to know the telos. So he would say, well, if you want to cure cancer, you have to know that the, the inner workings of how this thing is put together in order to get to the foundation. So uh, telos is 
uh, meaningful end of anything, uh, right? And you have to know what that is. So Augustine's going to use all these things. This is why we're uh, promoting these things. Augustine says, when there's a question, I, I love this phrase too, when there's a question to whether a man is good, one does not ask what he believes or what he hopes, uh, but what he loves, right? So it's a, it's a great little uh, idea there. Um, so now building on the city of God, what does he think is going on? So Christian history has meaning. The telos, the meaning of, uh, of this. In some ways, he suggests a twin citizenship then. Uh, unlike the Jews who would say, well, we're, we're separate from the world. God's purposes are through us. Uh, in this case, uh, the pilgrims uh, that they are as well, right? So Christians live in both the city and must endure the vicissitudes of earthly kingdom, yet can rejoice in the knowledge that ultimately their love is rewarded in eternal life. Um, Jesus was countered, as you saw uh, in Scripture, Matthew 22, uh, you know, who's, uh, who does this coin belong to? His response, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, render unto God those things that are God. And I think a lot of discussion of this verse throughout the Middle Ages about the responsibility then of Christians in society, rendering unto Caesar those things that belong to Caesar. But of course, it's, it's, a, it's a, a line in the sand, right? So to decide which uh, things belong to God uh, as well. And pilgrims is a very important thing. Now, um, a very famous phrase of Augustine, uh, apart from, I think still my favorite is, uh, to sing is to pray tw uh, twice, right? So I love his idea because I get so much out of song. Uh, but I love this one, uh, credo ut intelligam, right? I believe so that I may understand. So whenever you think he's looking at the structure that the Roman, Greek, Greco-Roman world understood and using that as a, uh, as a means by which people could understand the purpose of God in the world, right? We have to understand that he's transformed it at the same time, right? It's not just uh, what he's saying. So this is the uh, understanding here. So since Paul went to Mars Hill in Athens, we saw earlier, the question was that Tertullian asked, uh, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? So some Christians, a few in the early church, said nothing, right? We have nothing. Go back almost to being Jews again. And there's been a tradition in the Christian church uh, certainly for that. But Athens best represents the best of Greek philosophy, Jerusalem, uh, on the other hand. Now, Augustine in his writings, especially in Christian doctrine, uh, uses the phrase spalatium egotorum. Uh, and he's trying to, he's trying to say okay, um, how, how can I explain the Trinity? How can I explain God's purpose in history? Um, is there something of both uh, the ancient world and now the Greco-Roman world that we're supposed to sort of use for these purposes? And so the spoils of Egypt, you can see in that, should be taken and used uh, for God's purposes. So if you read uh, Exodus 3, 11, and 12, um, it talks a little bit about this. So the connection of the Christian church using the spoils of the Greco-Roman tradition is something that Augustine's willing to uh, consider uh, transforming them, right? We uh, continually uh, say that. God's providence then 
allowed for former developments in order to educate humans uh, and to help them uh, turn away from destructive polytheism, right? So uh, this is a comfort to me, too, when you read Romans, where it says, you know, God's word has gone out. And everybody was, is without excuse, right? So Augustine, I think, is helping us understand that early on, that there's a preparation for the gospel uh, out there. And I think this is uh, what we all can uh, rejoice in in our day as we think uh, our society, especially in the Northeast, has uh, little to do with Christianity, right? Where do we start? How do we uh, begin to evangelize? Uh, Augustine was already helping us back here um, and so forth. Um, so Augustine's history now. Um, I just have a few more minutes left. You're going to have to watch the rest of the slides uh, on uh, PowerPoint. Uh, so all events in history, uh, even evil actions uh, of fallen men, are part of God's providence. Uh, if you want to read a really good article on this, I've left it on the bottom here, John Maxwell uh, in Concordia Theological Journal. about prob- uh, it, it does a great job uh, uh, after this. History moves in a linear way. We've talked about that, uh, perfecting the church. Three, Christ is central to the meaning of history. Uh, that there's, again, another thing that you know about Augustine is the wheat and the tares. You've probably heard that, right? So that uh, understanding not just the church and society, but who is the church, right? Who, who is this collection? Now, of course, one of the great um, heresies are the Donatists who tried to create a pure church. Anybody who had remotely given in and not been willing to be martyred by the Romans when they when that was all done, the Donatists were like, "Nope, you're not coming back in our group here." You know, you and and the finger pointing, and so Augustine uh, wrote a lot about this, saying, "No, uh, the church is a collection of sinners, not saints." Right, and uh, and so that's uh, very important as well. That the true invisible church he talks about uh, is the spiritual body uh, and the weed and the tares. Uh, the last thing about history that really sets this off uh, is his whole idea that now history has these periods. I mean, Augustine's one of the first ones to talk about a linear history, uh, which there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so he, uh, again, we could, we could look at Calvin and not uh, think that given the fact that he's a child of his time, he sees something in a certain way, and, and we can now uh, look beyond that. But in this case, he says there's six ages. Uh, why is he saying this? I mean, he gets it from somewhere, Second Peter 3. One day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So he f- tries to figure out the first age, beginning of the race from Adam to the flood, the second age from Abraham, all nations, the third age extends from Adam to David, the king. Uh, fourth age, David to Babylon. So two captivities in there are significant uh, in terms of actions. Uh, fifth age, uh, f- uh, until Jesus. Uh, the sixth age, of course, is what we're waiting for. And then you could often uh, add a seventh age on there, which is the final judgment. So uh, those are the uh, ages that Augustine has. Um, I'm not, I have to stop now. Uh, I'm uh, the time, time is of the essence. I have a little thing at the end here on Christian monasticism uh, and the purpose of that uh, being played out in some of the things about holy living and dying. Uh, this is actually Ireland. Uh, Stacy and I went to this uh, 10 miles off the coast. There's this beautiful place uh, there. Uh, but you can see there's some more things here about monasticism and asceticism. 
one last thing I would say, though, is uh, okay. Um, there's one if if you wanna if you ever wanna experience uh, three hours of what some people would say is complete boredom. It's watching almost a silent film for three hours where it follows around Carthusian monks in their daily rituals, uh, and it's called uh, um, uh, uh, Into Great Silence by a German, uh, and it's about the life of these monks in a Carthusian mountains uh, in a monastery there. Uh, but it's it's just uh, if if you want to enter into a, a a way of looking at that in the Middle Ages is is an amazing film. So we'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>